G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. On Today with Jeff Vines, we're looking back at a series called The Story, as Pastor Jeff journeys through major events and key figures of the Bible. In this message, we're looking at stories found in the New Testament. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me want to dance and sing With every single breath I breathe I will bring this offering You are my wonder You bring the wonder Today 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 with Jeff Vines Hello, my name is Bill and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today we continue the story series in Matthew chapter 13. The disciples asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? In this parable of the seed and the sower, Jesus explains four different types of heart. Some really hear the Word of God, some hear it but discard it, and others don't hear it at all. Here's Pastor Jeff to unpack this parable even further for us and to see how that applies to us today. We're in Matthew chapter 13 from verse 9. I've been reading Tim Keller's new book on uh, walking with God through suffering, and he gives the illustration of British shepherds. He says, they'll throw the sheep one by one into a huge vat filled with antiseptic liquid. And he says, you got to do it. Otherwise, the sheep, there will be uh, infection and there'll be parasites. And so the shepherd has to take these sheep and thrust them down in under the water, under the antiseptic. And it's painful. You got to get their eyes, nose, mouth, ears, everything under. And you got to hold them for a certain amount of time. And the sheep will fight and kick and scream and try to get out. And then there are the sheepdogs there to bark and scare them to go back down into the water. But without it, these sheep would be the victims of parasites and all kinds of disease, ultimately death. Tim Keller says every time he thinks of that, he remembers that Jesus is described as the good shepherd. Elizabeth Elliot, commenting on this act of British shepherds, says, if only there were some way to explain it to the sheep. Don't you wish you could speak sheep? Listen, this is not a bad experience. (laughs) I just made that up on the spot. It's pretty sick, isn't it? If somehow you communicate to the sheep that I'm trying to save you. She goes on to say, but such knowledge is too wonderful for them. It's high. They can't attain to it. If that kind of gap exists between the shepherd and the sheep here, 
What kind of knowledge gap exists between me and the good shepherd? That's why Evelyn Underhill says, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshiped. Now stay with me. Hard heart, intellectual, never makes it down. into. There's never a spiritual experience and passion and emotion. But this guy's all emotional, and all he wants is, is a, a genie. Rub the lamp three times, get what you want. When he doesn't get that, he, he, he goes. Now, it's not difficult as a theologian to say, this guy's not in, and this guy's not in either. They didn't take crew, they didn't get it. It was temporary at best. But then he starts talking about this guy. And the third guy, he's those who listen with a divided heart. Now stay with me. This is the guy that represents most of us, probably. Before I really look at him, because I think the parable, that which stands out, is about this dude. Let's make sure we understand who this dude is. In verse 13, of chapter, verse 23 of chapter 13. But the seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands that this is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So we know who this guy is. Intellectual, emotional, they're gone. They're not in. This guy, oh man, he got it. He knows who God is. He knows who Christ is. He knows he needs a savior. He knows the spirit of God's working inside him. He's not perfect. He still fails. But man, he knows who he belongs to. He knows where he's going. And these tears that he cries are not tears of sorrow, but tears of joy. It's a relief, this guy. He finally gets it. He knows, man, I belong to God. God placed his spirit in me. I am forgiven. I am saved by grace, not by anything that I've done so that no man could boast. I am saved by the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. He's happy. He's elated. He's discovered his spiritual gifts. He knows what his purpose and plan for his life is. He's got it. And he's so overwhelmed with that truth that he's overwhelmed with tears of joy. And he bears fruit 30, 60, 90, 100 fold. Now, how many of you watched the show Extreme Makeover? Anybody? It's not on anymore, is it? But it was a good show. I mean, you'd have these people. I mean, actually, people would weep like a baby at the end. And so would you if you were watching it, no matter how strong you were, maybe except for this guy. <laughs> they were people who came onto the show who believed they had some kind of physical flaw and they just couldn't live with it anymore. Maybe they were ridiculed when they were growing up in school or in college with their friends. Maybe they were ridiculed as a child and they've been living with it for years. It could be your hair, your nose, your mouth, your skin, your weight, or all of the above. And so they come on the show expecting a total transformation. And if you remember the show, the, the process was painful. It could be a medical procedure. It could be surgery. It could be diet. It always was diet and exercise of some kind. And it is indeed extreme. As a matter of fact, you had to sign a waiver that if you died during the process, if something went wrong, you had a heart attack while you're trying to exercise or surgery didn't go the way, you had to sign a waiver. You wouldn't sue the program. I mean, this was an extreme makeover. But then on the last show of the season and they unveiled the transformation, you couldn't help it. If you're like me, you said, are you bald like a baby, man? And the family and friends and the, even the people in the studio audience who had no relationship with the person who had experienced the total transformation would just began to weep. If it was a husband who sees his wife for the first time or a wife who sees the husband, they would just buckle down. Sometimes they'd just fall to their knees. They, they didn't have the strength to stand. They were so overwhelmed. And you waited for that moment when they came out and there was the extreme makeover. It's like the whole studio audience saying, good for you, man. Something good has happened to you finally. The show was watched by millions. They never lacked for applications to come on the show. Never. Because there were so many people who wanted an extreme makeover. Now, let's say that you went on the show. Not that any of you would ever need to, but let's say just for theory that you did. 
And you went through all of this and the end came and you were no different. Now you're going to want your money back. You're going to say, hold on a minute. I think you owe me an explanation. I went through this entire rigorous process and I'm still the same. The point is, on extreme makeover, you assume that transformation is not optional but normative. And what I'm saying to you is, by the parable, Jesus says the same thing is true spiritually. If you've really stepped into the kingdom, we're going to see transformation and fruit into your life. Now, you're not going to be perfect. Never. And you might not have but 10 fruit, not 20, 30, 60 fold or 100, but you're going to have and you're going to be experiencing transformation from year to year. And if you don't, there's a serious problem. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says in Philippians 2, then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You see what I'm saying? Just as a timeout, there's the expectation that if you've stepped into the kingdom, that you've understood it, it's going past the end, like past the emotion, sooner or later, there's going to be fruit in your life. That is, if you're killing people before you receive Christ, after you stop. Okay, in a, in a, in a just an outrageous example. If you lose your temper, temper all the time, as you grow in your Christianity, you might lose your temper, but there's a much longer fuse. If you have trouble with forgiving people, the more you grow in your faith, the more we should see that you're a forgiving, merciful person. The longer you are a Christian, the more generous you should be. The longer you are a Christian, the more you want to serve the kingdom and expand its purposes here on the earth. If those things aren't in your life, there's a problem. And you'll never have the tears of joy knowing that you found it, that you understand it, that it's there. John Ortberg who's a pastor up at Menlo Park Presbyterian in Silicon Valley, talks about a guy named Hank. He said, when Hank was young, he was angry, bitter, and just, just sad all the time. But as he became a Christian, 40 years later, he was still angry and bitter and just miserable all the time. And finally, one of the elders walked up to him and said, Hank, are you happy? And Hank said, yeah. He said, well, tell your face. Obviously, his face never found out he was happy. <laughs> Hank, he said, complained about everything. He complained about his wife, his job, his children, his church. But his favorite topic was to complain that the music was too loud in the worship services. That was his favorite topic. He complained to people, to staff, to people who would listen out on the patio. And then when that didn't get it, after he went to the pastor, he would wait for new visitors, first time visitors. He'd say, hey, by the way, you don't want to come here. Our music's too loud. And yet he was there every week. <laughs> he said, Hank was not changing. He said, finally, one day, Ortberg says, I was seated up in my office and I got a call from this receptionist saying, hey, OSHA is here to see you. Now, OSHA is the federal regulatory agency that oversees safety in the workplace. They were at the church. Ortberg walked down. He saw this guy. He said, dude, I don't mean to make fun of you or laugh at you, but man, I got to tell you, it's not every day a pastor gets a visit from somebody from OSHA. And the guy starts lecturing Ortberg on sound decibels at airports and rock concerts. And Ortberg's just kind of shaking his head and it dawned on him. What had happened? Hank got no joy from complaining to all the congregants and the pastor and the elders and the staff. He decided to call OSHA on his own church. And so Orberg said to him, look, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just kind of laughing with you. It's not every day again. And he said, how do you think I feel? I'm from OSHA. How do you think I've been ridiculed all week from my fellow employees? They knew I was going out to bust a church. <laughs> Orberg says Hank was not changing. He wasn't loving. He wasn't kind. He was Forgiven, he was a narcissist. He was self-serving. It was all about him. He didn't want to be around people with other accents, skin color, ethnic backgrounds. He was easily irritated, miserable, and extremely judgmental. And Ortberg said, the thing that got me the most was he wasn't changing and nobody in church expected him to. 
Why? The hallmark of stepping into the kingdom of God is internal transformation. The Puritans call the Holy Spirit the expulsive power of a new affection. That when the Spirit of God comes into you, you're supposed to have new loves, new desires, new wants. Again, he not only changes what you do, but what you want to do. And if that's not there, you'll never experience the abundant life Jesus came to bring. So that brings me to this guy. Who is this guy? This is the only guy in the four that is miserable. Thus, frustration. This guy's not miserable. It's all intellectual to him. Doesn't go down to the heart. There's no tension in his life. He's smart and he thinks he's smart and that's good enough for him. This guy's not miserable. He just goes from one happiness fix to the next, even though he knows down deep inside that he's looking for something eternal. He's got both feet in the world and that's all that matters. He wants Jesus to help him get all the things he wants down here. His life is still lived for this world. He's not stepped into the next one. This guy stepped in. He's joyful, but this guy's an anomaly. He's the difficult one in the parable. Here's why. The seed did go down deep. It took root. He gets it. He's moved past the intellect, and he's not merely emotional. He knows that he's saved by grace through faith. He knows that the Spirit of God has come on the inside to transform him from the inside out. He knows. He gets it. But the Bible, when Jesus tells the story, says that the plant grows, but there are thorns and weeds that grow with it and begin to choke it out. Choke what out? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is inside him, but there's something that's choking it out of him. And he's got to be careful. I'm not smart enough to tell you whether this guy's saved or not. And I don't think that's the point of the parable. I think the point of the parable is to tell you that most people are going to end up here and they've got to find a way to get there. Because this guy here, his biggest problem is that unlike this guy who has both feet in the world, this guy has one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And it's driving him crazy. Because deep down inside, he knows that if he will fully submit and commit his life to Jesus, that Jesus is able to give him everything that will make him whole and complete. He knows it down deep inside. He knows about the lordship of Jesus. There's a part of him that really wants to do it, but the world has such a pull and tug on him. He just can't quite step completely out of it into the kingdom of God. And it's tearing him to pieces. He's miserable. There's great tension. These guys are happy. They're happy in their lostness. This guy Great tension because he knows, he understands, it's penetrated his heart, but he has difficulty. The kingdom of the world still has a hold on him. He has trouble obeying Jesus, even though he knows if he obeys Jesus, it will be good for him. So he struggles with his sexuality in the sense that he uses his body in a way that Jesus says, don't do that. He, he knows it's wrong. He feels guilty after he does it but he's still got one foot in the world. And just in case this Jesus thing doesn't work out, he doesn't want to lose everything. He doesn't understand you've got to lose everything to gain everything. These kind of people sacrifice their wife and their kids and their health for work and more money and more stuff. He knows that real riches and real kingdom is here with God. That's the one that's eternal. But just in case... He can't quite let go of his desire and passion for the things of the world. Even though down deep inside, he knows they're temporary at best. Money often becomes his driving force. He wants to be more generous. He knows he should be more generous, but he struggles to because just in case, he keeps one foot in the world and he keeps buying more things on his pleasures. And he feels guilty when he does it. And there's great tension when he does it, but he keeps doing it. His priorities are all out of whack. 
He wants to be generous toward Christ's kingdom. He wants to discover his gifts and use them, but he doesn't have time because he's got one foot in the world and it's taking so much of his energy and time to rise, to gain significance, to gain self-worth in what the world tells him he should be doing. He knows it's wrong. He wishes he didn't do it. He struggles with it. He has moments of conviction. He even repents sometimes. But the change doesn't happen because as the truth and the kingdom grow in him, so do the thorns and they grow and they're day by day choking it out of him so that the kingdom of God is becoming lesser and the kingdom of the world is becoming greater. Sometimes he'll go through his entire life and he's miserable. This group right here, they're the ones who suffer the most fear and anxiety and frustration and depression because they know internally the truth. They know what is true, but they have great difficulty practicing it externally. So there is internal turmoil and they know why they know why they just have never been able to have the strong will to say, I'm stepping completely out of the kingdom of the world. As a pastor, my fear is there's way too many people in this category. They know, they understand, they want to, and they'll spend their entire lives with this kind of tension. It's what I call the Exodus 3.12 scenario. We've talked about this before, where Moses says, God, how do I know that you'll be with me as I lead the children of Israel into Egypt? And what does God say? Here's how you'll know, Moses. You'll know that after it's all done, you'll stand on this mountain and you'll praise me for what I have done in your life. And we've said this before, Moses learned obedience always precedes filling, worshiping, experiencing God. These people have great difficulty experiencing and filling and knowing God because they're not quite willing to obey in the tough areas of their life. If you want to feel God and experience God and know him, you obey him. And when you obey him, you will feel God like you never have felt him before. We have lost our ability to feel God because we've lost our willingness to obey him in the difficult areas of life. Charles Spurgeon looks at this parable. I'm almost done. And he says, you know what? This guy is saved. Spurgeon says he's saved. He's on a boat that is going toward heaven and he can't fall off the boat. But then Spurgeon says, but he can fall on the boat and break all his bones and spend the entire time in the infirmary. That's too many of us. Pastor Jeff, what do I do? David said, oh Lord, unite my heart to fear thy name. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Help me to give every area of my life to you. My father loved tomato plants in the South. I mean, those, that was his pride and joy. He worked hard, long hours, but man, he loved tomato plants and he loved growing tomatoes. It was his pride and joy. I think he got a certain sense of significance. Everybody in our neighborhood knew you're not going to find better tomatoes or maters than you will from Dean Vines. And so my dad grew those things knowing the neighbors would want them. The problem is it got out of hand. He grew too many tomatoes. Uh, we didn't have air conditioned in Tennessee and you know what that was to been like. So when harvest time came, my father would place all the tomatoes in the windowsills to help them fully ripen, right? 
He knew exactly when to pick, pick them. He was a produce manager a lot of the, his young life, so he knew exactly how to treat them. And they would end up these red, delicious, just huge tomatoes. My father was so passionate about it. He would look out the window before he went to work just to see if there were any weeds down there. Every, more, every evening when he came home from work, the sun would be behind the tree so he could go out in the shade. And he would just pick those tomato plants clean of any kind of weeds, anything that shouldn't be there. And as a result, as he weeded them out, man, they would produce hundredfold. And then because we had too many, my dad would load me and my three brothers up in the car and we'd put the tomatoes in these boxes that no man could use. And he would stop in front of the neighbor's houses and we would run, ring the doorbell, put the box down and run back in the car and pull off just so to make sure that they didn't have the option of saying, no, I can't use the tomatoes because we couldn't take any more in our house. They were everywhere. <laughs> my dad, man, never seen anybody so passionate about pulling weeds to get a great crop. Now, hear me. You are not the gardener. You are the soil. And if you start trying to pluck out the things that are choking you on your own, you will fail. You're the soil. He's the gardener. And all he's asking you to do is give him permission to remove the things of the world that are choking the kingdom of God out of you. And if you will do that, just let me give you a warning. Stand back. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. But that's the only way to get to here. In my opinion, this is the only one we know with certainty is where he should be. I don't know. Only God knows. My tendency would be to say, yeah, he's on the boat, but it's going to be a miserable life. One foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God will be a struggle. And some of you have been Christians for a long, long time, have never made it here yet. And you've got to be honest with yourself and ask yourself, where am I? And I'm asking you to do that. Are you brave enough to say, God, pull out the weeds so that I can bear 30, 60, 90, 100 fold? so that I can make a difference in this world and so that I can have tears of joy to her. No more fighting. I've submitted completely. I'm yours, Lord. I'm yours. And the abundant life is yours and you've stepped into the kingdom. I want to ask us, would you be brave enough to say, God, open my eyes? Because usually you don't see the weeds. Open my eyes to the weeds that are stifling and choking out the kingdom of God in me. And give it over to him and allow him to do his work in you so that you can be all you can be for the kingdom of God. And so that this church can be the city on the hill that cannot be hidden. This is the first part of the journey. Honesty. If you're here, you need Jesus, folks. You're lost. If you're here, you need Jesus. You're lost. If you're here, you probably have him. But you've got to get to there. And it only happens when you give the gardener permission to do whatever it takes to remove the things in your life, choking out the kingdom of God. Father, I am so grateful for uh, a, such a strong parable story that brings to life who we are, who you are, and what you want to do. I pray for every soul in this room. Father, this is important stuff. This is the kingdom of God. This is stepping into your kingdom that will one day become a full reality in the world that is to come. I pray right now for anybody in the room that knows this has just been an intellectual experience for them for so long that their heart would be melted and as they've heard the seed and the word has been cast, that they would repent and you would become their savior 
and they would give their entire lives to you. For those who have been just emotional, I'm here because I want to get from Jesus what I can get instead of giving him everything, picking up my cross daily, living my life for a kingdom outside of myself. I pray, God, we would allow you to choke out that which is choking the kingdom of God out of us. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.